Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the market-stabilizing podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on April 10th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, as always, by my co-host, still peeved at being removed from the National Security Council, Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Frank, I do have to start off by thanking you for your hospitality last week at Maryland and the fantastic uh, workshop on uh, health law and uh, robotics that you organized. It was a, it was a stellar cast and it was a, a real privilege to be part of it. Oh, you're welcome, Nick. And your Rome lecture was fantastic. And I really cannot wait till it gets a wider distribution. Very interesting thoughts on robotics. So this week on Twill, we welcome back Heather Howard, a lecturer in public affairs at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, where she teaches courses on implementation of the Affordable Care Act, the social determinants of health and state and local health policy. She's also a faculty affiliate of the Center for Health and Wellbeing. She's the director of two Robert Wood Johnson Foundation-funded programs, the State Health and Value Strategies Program and the State Health Reform Assistance Network. Previously, she served as New Jersey's Commissioner of Health and Senior Services. We see you around on Twitter, Heather, but it's a great privilege to have you back on the pod. Nick and Frank, thanks for having me. I don't know whether I'm speaking for you on uh, on this as well, Frank, but uh, my sense is we've shied away from lightning rounds over the last couple of months and in large part that's because of the sort of the schizophrenic nature of policy making or unpolicy making and the various proposals we've been experienced on an almost daily basis uh, so how better to celebrate the congressional recess than with a couple of privacy headlines hopefully these will also cheer those of you who are still scratching your heads over FCC chairman Pi's justification for killing the cable company privacy rules that it was not the FCC's job, it was the FTC's job to do this. Although, frankly, I'm not aware of any law that would allow the FTC to require uh, a data sharing opt-in rule. So, lightning, Frank? Indeed, into this hurricane of health policy. Very well. The uh, the two privacy stops that I want to make are in Massachusetts and New York. And I, I think uh, potentially, once again, raise this idea of post-Trumpian state action to take up some of the issues that the federal government over the last uh, eight years has been working on and uh, and renew a sense of state law purpose uh, with regard to them. So the first one was a, a settlement that the Massachusetts Attorney General reached with a geofencing company. Geofencing, obviously, we, we often uh, we use ourselves to uh, trigger events, for example, when we get home and stuff like that. Uh, but they're also used in advertising, particularly in retail establishments, to uh, either track customers or push ads or coupons to customers on their mobile devices. Well, this one uh, had a rather ugly little twist to it. As far as one can tell from reading the uh, settlement, this particular uh, advertising company was targeting women in clinic waiting rooms, and it would then send them targeted advertisements that the settlement refers to as applicable to abortion-minded women. So uh, these were uh, ads such as uh, we have pregnancy help for you and you have choices and you're not alone. Apparently it was not just in Massachusetts it was going on that they had these programs running in 
several other states as well. But beyond creepy, I thought. And good job on the Attorney General in Massachusetts for taking a swing at that. The uh, second one is a, an area that you know, Frank, is, is beloved unto me, which is uh, the uh, effectiveness and safety of mobile health apps. And this comes to us from the Attorney General in New York, who apparently did a broad investigation of mobile health apps and how they were being marketed. And in this particular settlement, they concentrated on three apps, uh, Cardio, Runtastic, and Mattis, that um, either um, tracked heartbeats of, uh, of a fetus or of a person. And uh, essentially, the Attorney General argued that uh, these apps were deceptive or harmful to patients because of inaccurate or misleading results. So I thought a really sort of interesting little point on their scoring system now, both in terms of of privacy, but also, as I said before, in potentially the way states are beginning to fill in some of the foreseeable gaps in our regulation. Ah, yes, Nick. I think that is a really uh, heartening sign. It also reminds me of Schneiderman's investigation of dietary supplements. And although I think its methodology came under some fire, he definitely did conclude that there were many instances where not merely was there no proof of safety or no proof of efficacy of the substances, but that in many bottles, there was not even the substance that was said to be in the bottle. So your ginkgo bilboa may well be uh, sawdust. Um, So I think that Schneiderman is doing a great job looking into these things. In terms of my lightning round entries, I'm going to put in two that I think are foreshadowing a potential fissure on the left about the nature of healthcare spending in the macro economy. The first is an article from Mother Jones covering five articles in The Lancet that described a 21st century health poverty trap in the United States thanks to a growing uh, gap in life expectancy between the rich and poor. And this gap has been discussed in policy circles very often. The Case and Deaton study uh, is an important contribution here. Many people are noting a decline in uh, life expectancy for some parts of the American population. And the Mother Jones article blames this on the cost of health care. Um, the question, of course, being that I always like to raise is there's two, you've got to have two uh, partners to tango here. And in most places, there is a robust public financing mechanism to uh, deal with healthcare costs or to otherwise regulate them. So I think we always have to put those two things together. We particularly have to put them together because uh, thanks to an Alterum uh, study, Alterum paper that was uh, reported by Michael Hiltzik in the Los Angeles Times, we now know that uh, hundreds of thousands of jobs were created by the Affordable Care Act's expansion of coverage. And this, of course, relates to our conversation with Gwian McKee about uh, his work with respect to healthcare and as a jobs engine, especially for a lot of struggling uh, urban areas. And so the question then that arises out of the uh, confluence or conflict between these stories is, if we have a push to uh, cut healthcare costs across the board, are we undermining one of the most robust aspects of macroeconomic growth? Uh, And meanwhile, uh, I I think that's going to be a really big question for uh, policymakers in the uh, post-Trump era. Indeed, and I think uh, both uh, implicate uh, the 
the issues that we're going to be discussing with Heather today. So, Heather, again, uh, welcome. I wondered if we uh, could start with just the, uh, you know, Medicaid Expansion 101, or maybe it's 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 the slightly advanced course. During the Obama administration, one has sort of got used to an assumption that states that refused to expand Medicaid were doing so for essentially political reasons. And therefore, there was some uh, potential, it was thought, as we went into the new administration, that if healthcare survived in any way, we would actually see some states changing their mind. But, you know, Kansas went very close, but not close enough. Uh, Virginia said no. The North Carolina governor is tangled up in the courts with his legislature. Um, but I wonder if it really is just a political issue. Uh, there was a reported statement from a Missouri state representative earlier this week. Quote, we've had to cut over 500 million of spending from this year's budget to essentially make room for growth in Medicaid. And he said that expanding the program would make things worse. Even with the federal funds for expansion, he said Missouri would be on the hook for another 200 million a year and doesn't see where you come up with that. So I wonder whether it goes beyond simple politics, but that there is a a decent policy argument to be made here. Thank you. That's a great way to start the discussion. And, And, you know, what we've seen in some states is there are people who worry about whether or not the federal government will maintain its commitment to the enhanced funding under the ACA. And I think that's probably what that Missouri legislator was referencing was now that it's not 100% funded, now that we're in the out years, it's going to scale back and it'll be funded at 90%. I would argue that's still a very good deal. Uh, states are between 50 to, uh, the state share is between 20 to 50%. So to be able to get, um, to only have to pay 10% is a pretty good deal. But I could see how states, and you know, and it's interesting, we used to say, well, the feds have never cut. Uh, FMAP have never uh, reneged on a commitment to fund the states. But of course, the legislation that's been pending in Congress, the American Health Care Act, would do just that. It would start to roll back uh, the Medicaid expansion. So maybe, maybe there is some truth to that. But stepping back, I would still argue that it's a good deal for states. Um, a state that expands today would get 95% federal match, it, you know, instead of its usual um, 50 to about 80%. So it's much higher. And what we've seen is that states are able to find significant savings in their state budget. There may be areas where they're using state dollars, where they don't need to do state dollars anymore, where they can basically basically put um, populations and benefits onto Medicaid and save uh, save state dollars. States, for example, that are using state dollars for substance abuse treatment, um, now now patients will have Medicaid coverage that will pay for that substance abuse treatment. In my home state of New Jersey, we've seen that the state has been able to cut $400 million from its charity care fund because uncompensated care costs for hospitals have gone down so much. So what we've seen is that the states that have expanded have really found savings. And those savings have been enough to cover, likely going forward, to cover that that state share that's now at 5% and is going to scale back to 10%. And of course, some states have put in what, what we call trigger laws, um, such that if the federal reimbursement ever goes below the promised amount, the expansion can be repealed. So if a state is worried about that commitment, there's a way to account for that. But I really do think it's worth stepping back and saying 31 states have expanded. 
And the vast majority of them that have have seen significant savings to their state budgets. But beyond that, they've seen that it's really strengthened their safety net. And especially in southern states, we're seeing rural hospitals struggling. And so I think you have the right list of states to watch, Kansas, North Carolina, and Virginia. And to those, I would add Georgia, where they've had some some rural hospitals close. And it's really called the question about, should the state be using state dollars to prop up rural hospitals or would be the better option from a policy perspective be to expand Medicaid coverage, which would bring in more reimbursement and help support those hospitals. So I would add Georgia to your list of states to watch where where people are saying, are listening to actually to Speaker Ryan say the ACA is going to be the law for this foreseeable future. We ought to think about taking advantage of what options are out there. We'll hold our nose and at least bring in some funding to support our providers. So let's focus in on the already expanded states and a lot of their expansion agreements are coming up for renewal and a very clear signal has been sent by Seema Verda, the new CMS administrator, uh, that work requirements are something that are back on the table. She uh, had uh, originally put that into the Indiana HIP 2.0 proposal, but uh, CMS didn't buy it. And uh, it looks like she's already recused herself from the Kentucky issue that's coming up. But let's chat a little bit about this work requirement that uh, I think Sarah Rosenbaum put it rather pithily. This is a solution in search of a problem. <laughs> She's also uh, called it Dickensian, I think I've heard her say. Um, and it, it's it's true. I think what she's getting at is the fact that people talk about wanting to encourage responsibility among beneficiaries, but they may not recognize that actually the vast majority of people on Medicaid come from families where there are there is a either they or a family member is working already. Uh, they may not be working full time because they may not have access to full time, but somebody in that family is working. And so especially in states that have not expanded Medicaid and that have less robust programs, on who would you be imposing such a work requirement? Uh, presumably not on the elderly and the disabled. Um, um, so, so there's not that much of a base on whom to apply such a work requirement. Now, if a state is doing it in the context of expanding, that is um, that does include childless adults who are reached by the expansion. But it goes back to that the majority of those people are actually in families who are working. So I think it's based a little bit on a, on, on a misunderstanding of who the Medicaid population is that it is largely a program for the working poor and um, and actually that what Medicaid does is it helps people get healthy so that they can contribute to the economy and so that perhaps um, the concern would be that you're flipping it and you're actually um, by denying people coverage you may be preventing them from being able to contribute to the economy rather than helping them be able to work and contribute to the economy um, but as you mentioned there are some interesting waivers coming up we've got of the 31 states that expanded Medicaid, six of them did so through 11 to 15 waivers and did basically alternative, included alternative features in their waiver. And some of those are coming up. Indiana's coming up for renewal. As you mentioned, Kentucky um, has a new waiver request in, and it's probably worth taking a little bit of detour to talk about Kentucky, because what's interesting on Kentucky, you mentioned that uh, there hasn't been a wave of new states coming in to expand Medicaid, but Kentucky's interesting because the governor there, there was a change in leadership, and the governor had run against the Medicaid expansion. But once he got into office, he did not repeal it. I think he saw that 
it covered a lot of people and that it was important to the safety net and healthcare providers in the state. So he's trying to remake it um, in a more conservative fashion, but he's not proposing to repeal the, the Medicaid expansion. And one of the things that the, one of the issues that he's teed up for CMS is this work requirement. And it would require that people either prove that they're working or that they'll volunteer while they're on the Medicaid benefit. And the Obama administration had had said very clearly that they would not approve such a, a waiver, work requirements, um, that that seemed to undermine the entitlement nature of the benefit. But we've got a new perspective now, obviously. And I think the appointment of Seema Verma to head CMS really symbolizes that new commitment. She was a well-known, well-respected conservative consultant who helped helped craft Indiana's waiver. And now, as you mentioned, um, can't actually rule on Kentucky's waiver request because she helped them um, devise there. So she was a, a clear thought leader on the outside in helping states um, come up with innovative proposals. And by choosing her, it's the first person, she's the first person to head CMS um, in a while who's been a real Medicaid expert. Traditionally, that position has been a Medicare person. And so it signals a real focus on Medicaid and a real focus on the states and on innovation. And so I think all eyes now are on the Indiana renewal that's in, the Kentucky and the Kentucky um, amendments that are pending. And I would I would bet, if I were a betting person, that those will be approved, uh, that those are consistent with the, with the ide- ideology of the new administration. I think uh, KFF put it rather well that uh, policy arguments for and against work requirements are, as they said, grounded in views about whether Medicaid is akin to a cash welfare program or one that provides health insurance. That's right. And Medicaid today is so different than it was um, in the early years. It, it really now is health insurance. It's one of the health insurance options available to people in this new world order under the ACA. And by bringing in uh, everybody up to 138% of poverty, it was envisioned to be another health insurance. And it really was the, the final step in decoupling it from welfare, um, which of course that sort of began in the 90s under Clinton. So it really, so the modern Medicaid as we know it is not the same welfare program that, that it once was. But I think it's, I think it is, it does depend on, it's a little bit of a Rorschach test for how you see it. And I just want to add uh, some empirical uh, data to the discussion, which is that when we look at the work status of Medicaid beneficiaries. Uh, Drew Altman wrote for the Kaiser uh, Family Foundation uh, and really nicely typologized it. It turns out that 41% of Medicaid beneficiaries are indeed working full-time. 18% are working part-time. Of the 41% that remain, the reasons for not working include 35% are ill or disabled, 28% are taking care of home or family, 18% are going to school. You know, Then there's the retired, and then only 8%, there were 8% that could not find work, and 3% are in other category. So I guess, you know, given our experience uh, with uh, drug testing for certain benefits, um, certain states have deemed it apparently worthwhile to spend millions of dollars to find one or two people that might be on drugs. Perhaps going after that, 3% of the 41% seems to be the policy goal here. I don't know, but I will add that to the show notes page. Frank, that's a really good point. I mean, that, you know, it's a policy question, but it's also basically an operational and administrative question for a state is, uh, you know, how much, how much will it cost financially and in terms of 
um, people power to actually administer some of these requirements. Now, 1115 waivers are supposed to be demonstration projects, so they're an opportunity to learn what works and doesn't work. And I would hope that we'll be able to learn under some of these um, under some of these waivers because we obviously don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past. And we just saw that Governor Walker in the past week has uh, signaled that he's going to be submitting a waiver to what you just mentioned, Frank, actually to impose a, a drug testing requirement on um, Medicaid applicants in Wisconsin. So I think you have to think about it from a state capacity question. What is it going to take to implement and track these kind of requirements? And I would want to make sure that any evaluation of these waivers actually includes that part of the picture. What's the administrative burden on the state? Oh, that is such a great point, Heather. I, I agree with that. I actually, it reminds me of a workshop that I'm holding mm-hmm. in Baltimore this June, where some of the sessions are going to be on targeted versus non-targeted uh, social programs. It's on a new law and economics uh, paradigm. And yeah, I think the state capacity pr- point is very well put there. On the positive side, though, and I don't want us to get too uh, <laughs> bow- wound up in the uh, in some of these uh, uh, troubling programs, I'm wondering if you could elaborate for listeners on the source of savings in the expansion state. What are we learning from Medicaid expansion about ways in which uh, health costs overall can be brought down by universalizing or, or at least expanding coverage? Great question. I mean, because now we have a couple years under our belt and we really are starting to see how states are saving based on the Medicaid expansion. And so uh, I can, you know, as I mentioned, uncompensated care costs are down significantly um, in the states that that uh, expanded Medicaid. And so many states have state-funded charity care programs, like I mentioned New Jersey earlier. So in New Jersey, Governor Christie in, has our charity care program under the Medicaid expansion has gone from $650 million to $250 million. And not only has he saved that money, he's actually reinvested some of that money into provider rates for substance abuse providers to increase uh, the supply of uh, providers to treat what is a growing epidemic here and, and everywhere. So that's an example of how a state can sort of pivot and use the use those savings. Um, another example actually, is as states think about um, public health programs that they may have been using for state dollars, they may have been uh, running um, behavioral health clinics with state dollars that are no longer need to be funded with state public health dollars because um, those programs can be, as you said, Medicaidized, and um, you could uh, get that substantial federal funding, that 95% federal funding for um, for providers. So that's been uh, another example where you've been able to basically supplant federal Medicaid funding for state public health dollars, which you know comes at an important time for states because states are just now starting to see revenue equal, you know, getting back to the pre uh, pre recession era. So state fiscal constraints are significant. Um, Another area is in criminal justice, where some vanguard states have found ways to um, make sure that um, the, the, you know, of course, we know that Medicaid can't pay for the inpatient hospitalization of uh, people in the criminal justice system, for, for, but for outpatient costs and to um, very quickly make sure that people who are cycling out of um, the criminal justice system are connected to healthcare, which helps support a, a positive reentry. So states have been using, have been finding, and sometimes you can supplant state dollars, or it just means a new benefit 
that strengthens other efforts you're trying to do. We've also finally, uh, another area is in uh, pregnant women uh, where states um, had some programs where states were using um, state dollars in some areas to support pregnant women. And those populations can be put on um, Medicaid, again, can call, can draw down federal Medicaid dollars where state dollars were being used. So if states are 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 smart about it. And states, I was a state official. I was New Jersey's Commissioner of Health and Senior Services. You've got very smart people in state government who are constantly thinking about, is there a way I can seek federal match for this initiative? And so we've seen across the country, states uh, really looking for those opportunities to maximize uh, federal revenue in a way that has um, um, inured to their bottom lines. To uh, wrap those two issues together, 1115s and some sort of state uh, innovations. I think there are a couple that are out there that seem particularly interesting. So, for example, Arkansas with its so-called private option. Uh, I wonder whether that is sort of has some sort of potential for sort of mainstreaming Medicaid, if you like. And and you know, once we start viewing it as just another insurance system, uh, that might be uh, very interesting. And then back to Indiana. I, I hate to do this to you, Heather, but uh, the cost sharing models that HIP 2.0 uh, brought in. In the uh, expansion uh, renewal application, Indiana made, I thought, some quite unsupported claims as to the success of its cost-sharing model. And I wondered both uh, as to either of those kind of private insurance-like options, whether you had some thoughts. Yeah, that's a, it's, it's actually good to think of those together because you're really trying to import some of the ideas from the private market into Medicaid. And it's not always clear that those will work. I think Arkansas has worked because they have included that the Medicaid expansion population in uh, their commercial market. And it's actually ended up strengthening their commercial market that the uh, that population tended to be healthier and has improved the risk pool for the for the uh, on the exchange and has a positive has had a positive impact on premiums. So it's actually strengthened the individual market while at the same time is, as you mentioned, sort of commercializing and mainstreaming Medicaid. Everybody's got the same insurance card. And and that might be the wave of the future, especially if it's done in a way that actually strengthens the commercial market, not undermining it. Uh, with Indiana, what you're seeing is an attempt to import some of these benefit design ideas that are being done in commercial markets where um, consumers have uh, greater responsibility for their insurance. Of course, the problem at the lower end of the income scale is, 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 is both can people afford it, even small small amounts are, uh, very small amounts, uh, are significant to people uh, at this point, as you mentioned, below the poverty line, even one to five dollar copays may be a deterrent. And so the the sort of the first question is, can people afford it? And the second question is, what does it do towards utilization of services? And it may go beyond, I think there's some research that showed that not only does it deter um, unnecessary services, but it might deter necessary services, which um, would be counter to the, the objectives of the Medicaid program. And I think we need to pay close attention to that. As you mentioned, there is an evaluation by Mathematica underway on the Indiana waiver. And to the extent that the Indiana waiver is sort of the, the gold standard now for states that want to do waivers, I think it bears more scrutiny because more states are going to be adopting Indiana, are going to say, I want Indiana plus is tends to be the way the states approach these things. They want whatever was the latest plus more. And um, so, but this 
question, it's a really profound one of how do we incense the, the positive behavior, but do it in a way that's not disincenting the good behavior too. And that's certainly, I think, the fear of many researchers based on early evidence in, in cases like this when imposing cost sharing on very low income beneficiaries is that it ends up, um, you could end up deterring people from, from important services. Where I'd like to take the conversation, uh, if you don't mind, Heather, is in terms of the short and long-term uh, fiscal threat to hospitals, particularly Southern hospitals. Um, I'm noting that in uh, as I look on Twitter on the news on the Medicaid expansion or lack thereof, seems like the angle in most papers like uh, Montgomery Advertiser, Florida Papers, others, uh, Mississippi, is that the hospitals are getting nervous or large hospitals are getting nervous um, if there is not a Medicaid expansion or there's other uh, help to them. And then I'm thinking, you know, even if they are able to sort of patch together uh, some or to keep things going, uh, you know, in terms of keeping these hospitals open, it seems like there's a lot of uh, Republicans in Congress now that want to turn Medicaid into a block grant. And if we've learned anything from the experience of uh, block granting TANF, it's that it's really not going to maintain its value over the years. Its real value is going to decline. And so I'm just wondering if you could comment on, you know, do you think this is going to potentially really restructure the way hospital care is delivered as uh, hospitals, especially in the South, see the writing on the wall and see uh, sources of funding drawing up? I think you're right to identify what's in effect a double whammy, which is the potential. If, if states don't expand Medicaid because the environment is not conducive to it, the political environment, plus changes at the federal level. And I, I think hospitals breathed a sigh, a sigh of relief a couple weeks ago when the American Health Care Act was pulled from consideration in the House, but they um, but the ideas contained in it uh, are priorities for congressional leadership. So I think we will see them pop up again. And in particular, it may not be the form of, of a block grant. It may be a per capita, uh, a per capita cap. But, but either way, I think those are caps on federal funding. And as you note, as we've seen with other caps on federal fo- funding, they do the value erodes over time. And in particular, in the context of healthcare, what I think will happen is that you end up with a food fight among uh, stakeholders, right? So there'll be less money coming in to the state, uh, be either because the inflation factor is not sufficient or, or, or maybe and um, you've, you've gotten more people are enrolled. There are new health um, innovations, new drugs that come on the market that, that raise costs that aren't contemplated in the cap. You know, a new hepatitis, you know, Savaldi, a new drug to cure hepatitis C comes on the market. And if it wasn't built into your baseline, Line, um, you can't afford it. So when you're giving a state uh, less money, you're going to have a food fight among providers and nursing homes and hospitals being the key ones. So hospitals, I think, are right to be worried about what this means for their bottom line. And I think down the road, I would imagine they're going to be asking to revisit their community benefit obligations and other requirements that they're going to argue they can't afford to maintain. I mean, you're already seeing it um, in the fight over the dish cuts. Um, now, the American Healthcare Act did include extra money for the states um, that didn't expand Medicaid, which presumably could have gone to help those hospitals. But um, I think we're more likely to see the cuts than the extra money. And so if you're if you are in the hospital industry, I think you have to be thinking about how do I maintain my business? And of course, this is happening at the same time that length of stay is going down. And, you know, there are other changes happening as well in, in the market. In 
February, there was a, a bill called the Healthy Californian Act, Healthy California Act, introduced into the Californian legislature. Just last weekend, I think in Massachusetts, there was a, uh, a rally in support of single-payer universal care. And we're seeing other sort of odd fellows uh, in, in, in this space, such as uh, Oklahoma's uh, new 1332 draft, if, if, it, if it was accurate, and Alaska and other places is there is there any potential here for moving in that direction so i uh, what what's what's the what's the uh, the lay of the land in in 1332 space heather well i, th- I think what you're seeing is that uncertainty at the federal level is not preventing states from moving ahead states continue to have their own fiscal imperatives they have to balance their budgets every year and healthcare is the biggest part of their budget so states you know they'd rather have certainty from the federal government but in the absence of it they're continuing ahead and you're seeing it in both red and blue states. So you mentioned California. To me, that's an example of this new line of progressive federalism of states trying to step out. And it's California saying, um, we're going to, you know, we're going to think about going our own way on a single payer system. Uh, uh, you know, my, the, my main question for California is how do you do that without, uh, how do you ensure you have sufficient funding to do it? Um, and there you do need the federal government as a partner. And of course, we all learned as we watched Vermont, how hard it can be to figure out how to do that on on an individual state level. Vermont tried and had to shelve its plans for universal health care under 1332. Now, California, of course, has has scale, if anyone has scale. So I would never bet against California. But I think the funding is the key question there. But as you mentioned, Alaska and Oklahoma are in the game, too. And these are states saying, we're not going to wait for the federal government to come in and stabilize our individual markets. Uh, Alaska had one carrier in its re- remaining in its market, and that carrier was threatening uh, to leave and was proposing over 40% uh, rate increases. And so uh, Alaska stepped in with the state-funded reinsurance uh, program, which uh, resulted in, once they enacted it, their insurer refiled their rates and um, dramatically reduced the increases that they were seeking because of that reinsurance program. Alaska's following that up now with the 1332 uh, waiver request saying to the federal government, hey, we we're, we instituted a reinsurance fund. It's going to lower premiums from everyone for everyone. It's going to save you, the federal government, money because you're going to pay out less in uh, tax credits. Why not share some of those savings with us? And the early signals from uh, the Trump administration echo what we heard from the Obama administration at the end of 2016, which is that the federal government likes this idea. They like seeing states get in the game. So I would predict that Alaska will, um, will a version of Alaska's waiver will get approved, and that becomes um, a model that other states may want to emulate. And then Oklahoma is really interesting to watch because they've had probably the most extensive stakeholder process um, developing. A, they've had this basically this 1332 waiver process that met all summer and fall last year, and they've got a white paper out now with a with a number of ideas on how to stabilize their individual market, including a potential potential reinsurance fund like Alaska's um, standardizing eligibility rules and subsidies, promoting more consumer acti- uh, uh, engagement. I mean, it's a it's a list of, of really interesting ideas um, that they're getting public comment on now and uh, really pushing the envelope. So what to me, what the story is, is states not waiting in the, even in the face of federal uncertainty and saying, what existing authority do, authority do we have? We talked about it in the Medicaid context. There's 1115 authority. 
But 1332 authorities is perhaps even broader because it allows you to waive many of the ACA's provisions, including the exchange and the mandates. And um, and it's not just blue states, it's blue and red. So it certainly makes it um, sort of states really fascinating actors to be watching right now in the health policy arena. I agree. It is really a kaleidoscopically complex uh, area of law and policy right now and lots of innovation happening on the state level. So for our last question, and I'm sorry if it's an unfair question, but I think there might be uh, some way to address it. One of the things that's really happening now is that there's just such uncertainty uh, about, say, is the AHCA possibly coming back in some incarnation, either via back-channel negotiations between Bannon and the Freedom Caucus or some other uh, form of uh, political compromise. And I'm just wondering, are there certain issues beneath this sort of very volatile legislative arena that all the journalists seem to be focused on that are definitely going to be in the air, say, a year from now. If if you were to predict, you know, April 2018, what are some of the top issues we're going to be thinking about? I think these Medicaid funding questions, and especially the proposals to cap met federal Medicaid funding, either through a block grant or per capita cap, are going to keep coming back. They may come back in the context of when Congress needs uh, pay-fors for tax cuts or other reforms for which they need revenue savings, or they could come back in the context of CHIP reauthorization. Uh, as I'm sure you know, CHIP is up um, October 1st for reauthorization. So that'll be a must-pass bill come September, and that's a vehicle on which we may see this come up again. So I think a year from now, we'll still be talking about this issue of state flexibility, but in the context of perhaps constrained resources, which um, of course is what makes it so interesting. Because I think at this states welcome these the greater flexibility that's being signaled um, from Washington. And of course, you know, many of us have been thinking about uh, the social determinants of health and how can Medicaid play a role in addressing those social determinants of health? Can Medicaid pay for stable housing, um, which we know is so critical to um, individual health? But the ability of states to use Medicaid to meet some of these new challenges will be severely constrained if some of these proposals are put in place, which is what makes it so interesting is that states see the carrot of increased flexibility, but I'm not sure um, everyone understands the risks of the capped funding. So, and I think we will be seeing it at various, there are various inflection points in federal debates where we could see the, these issues being revisited. And that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Howard for returning turning to the pod on twitter you can find her at heather h howard thanks so much for coming back and joining us heather thank you guys we post our show notes at twill.com you can contact me at nicholas terry on twitter and frank where will you be this week at health pi on twitter thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week and boy this congressional recess is awesome